discussion last week of the servant uh, king, uh, the privilege of understanding that the Messiah who's going to come, the one who's going to fulfill all the prophecies that we're reading about in the book of Isaiah all points to uh, Jesus Christ himself. And then we also see as we're walking through this amazing book, not only the incarnate God coming to earth, but the privilege of understanding that yet this, the, the second largest of the uh, books in the Bible, thank you, Nathan, uh, not only is solely focused on Jesus Christ, the Messiah, but every single one of the prophecies in this book is going to be fulfilled through uh, Jesus uh, Christ. In Isaiah chapter 44, uh, we read this. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant in Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. And so, Father, tonight as we approach uh, this amazing book, uh, as we've been walking through it, help us to see just a little bit clearer, maybe uh, chapters, uh, sections of the Bible that we ourselves have never read before, Th those sections in the Bible that, that we've never uh, opened up because maybe uh, the devotional never took us there or, or we never got around to it or it's too hard to understand. And so, Lord, tonight, open up our, our eyes, our minds, our hearts to see your word and the richness of it, how literally in every single section of the Bible, uh, you are proclaimed in all your majesty, uh, the privilege of seeing uh, the uniqueness of every single one of the books of the Bible and the way that you are brought out in different ways in each of those books. And so, Lord, tonight, speak to our hearts as well. All those things that may be troubling us or, or preventing us from uh, seeing you clearly tonight, uh, take those away from us. All those things that may be distracting our minds, uh, remove those uh, from us so that we can focus upon you, so that our hearts and our minds would be focused upon you and you alone tonight. Lord, we desire, we desire to know you better. In Jesus' name we pray, uh, amen and amen. This, this is the, the privilege that we have as we've been walking through uh, this very, very long book. And if you remember correctly, when we were all the way back in chapter 6, we learned that God is holy, holy, holy in his majesty, in his glory. And now in the second part of this book, starting in chapter 40, we see the incarnate God coming to this earth as a servant king, the, the one who deserves all honor and praise. And how does he come to the earth? As a little baby in a manger, 
the, the one who can claim to be God and king. And yet he himself would wash the feet of his disciples. Uh, the, the one who deserves all honor and praise is crucified on a cross for you and for me. The, the servant king, the one who comes to uh, this earth. And the privilege as we've been walking through uh, the book of Isaiah is to see the majestic way that it is laid out. You see, uh, the book of Isaiah is 66 chapters. Exactly the same amount of books that we have in our Bible, 66 books of the Bible. Isaiah is also divided in exactly the same way that our Old Testament and our New Testament are divided. In the first section of the book of Isaiah, there is 39 chapters mirroring the Old Testament. And then the second part, as we've been starting in chapter 40, all the way up to Isaiah chapter 66, we see that there's 27 chapters all mirroring uh, the New Testament itself. And so in this section, second section, we see a majority of it covering what the Messiah will do. Uh, how the Messiah will present himself when he comes to uh, this earth. In fact, in the first section here, uh, we see some amazing verses. Uh, verses that declare who a God is in his relationship uh, to us. What does it say there in verse 1? Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Do you understand the privilege that we have to know God? And we all can remember, hopefully, a time where we made that decision uh, to become a Christian or, or to accept Jesus Christ into our hearts or, or to pray that prayer of salvation. But how long has God known you? How long has God known you? Before you knew God, God already knew you. Just as it's described here, even in the womb itself. We're going to see an, an amazing passage in Jeremiah when we get to uh, that book as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the privilege that we have as we're walking through to understand that God knows us. And he loves us personally. In fact, in verse 3 there it says, For I will pour water on him. Who is thirsty? By the way, it's a perfect segue. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for my, my son and also Terry in the back who got me some uh, water. It's just like a, you know, uh, um, a relay race there. And floods on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. We understand that, yes, I have the privilege of knowing God personally. And God knows me personally, but what about the next generation? What about the next generation? All those kids uh, that are having fun, Vanessa and all those teachers over there that have volunteered their time for us uh, unselfishly so that you can be here and your kids can be over there. The privilege of knowing on Sundays as well that there's Sunday school teachers that want 
to teach your kids. They don't just babysit. What do they do? They teach them from the word of God. And the privilege of knowing that that next generation is the future of the church. And the, the future of those that are coming up that will be trained to be in leadership positions. The junior high and the high school group. Of those that are helping out now, learning to be servants. Learning to serve in the church. Giving up of them, their, themselves uh, and uh, their time as well. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. One, another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. How many times have you looked up the definition of your name? Or, or maybe when you were having a child, looking up the definition of their name. And normally, especially if you're a Christian, what do you want the name of your children to be like? To glorify the Lord. A name like, my name is John. You know, God is gracious. Or a name from the Bible that describes God and maybe the future of that child in such a way that it's personal to them. The privilege of understanding that God wants the next generation to be defined by him. You see, the people of Israel will be proud to call themselves after the name of God. They're proud of who they are, the chosen people of God. And this, of course, will want them to be identified as God's people. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, it continues on, And thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Just as Kat and Rebecca were singing about tonight and talking about tonight. You understand that there is no God beside God himself. The definition of who God is, is defined in the personhood of God, his holiness, and, and who he is. And one of those titles is listed here. Now, of course, you guys know that, you know, this title is also used in the book of Revelation, too. You probably recognize it right away, in fact. In Revelation chapter 1, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. The bookends of all time itself. There was nothing before God and there'll be nothing after God. Do you understand that? God has always existed. We live in this blip of time and everything in our life is defined by time. We have 24 hours in a day, 60 minutes in a week, 60 seconds in a minute, right? And we're always looking at the time. We're always defined by, I have to be at a certain place at this time. But what about God? God is outside of time. Before anything existed, God was. God always has been. There was nothing before God existed. Do you understand that? Because God has always existed. The definition of the first and the last is that God has always been. 
And did you have a, a grandma or a grandpa that it seemed like they would always live? They'd always been around. They knew all the stories, right? They, they were old when you were born already. They had already lived a life. But do you understand that, that you know, 80, 90, 100 years is minuscule compared to the length of God's existence? God has always been and always will be. Eternity past and eternity future. Verse 7, and who can proclaim as I do, then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. What is the certainty of God? You see, as we're going to see in the very next chapter, there are many critics of the Bible. There, there are many critics of this book. Oh, this couldn't have been written at this time, or it couldn't have been written by one person. It had to have been written over a certain length of time because of the accuracy of the prophecies. You see, it was God who designed every single word of Scripture. We have a bedrock, a surety, an understanding that God is the foundation from which we get Everything that we have, my strength, my life, my family, everything comes from a God. And if we truly understood that in our daily walk, what would our life look like? Would we have less worries? Oh, yeah. Would we have less troubles in our life if we define who we are by the surety of who God is? I base my life upon the rock uh, that is uh, God. And the foundation of this is that we have the privilege of being God's witnesses. You see, when people look at you and, and hear that you're a Christian or, or you tell them that you go to church or, or you tell them that you believe in God, what happens then to their outlook upon you, their perspective of you? Do they look at you a little bit cl closer? Do they, do they look at you in such a way, well, I'm going to see if this person messes up? Yeah. Many of our lives can be put underneath a microscope when people find out that we're a Christian. And unfortunately, what happens, especially in the news, and, and unfortunately, you know, especially in, in uh, entertainment, what happens when a person who is of a certain level of faith fails? Does it make the front page news? Does it get turned into a movie? Oh, yeah. Why? Because the world just wants us to fail. But do you understand we have a foundation that comes from God himself?
self. Verse 9, it continues on. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit, nor are there any or their own witnesses. Uh, they neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him Nothing. The comparison now is between the eternal, holy, or righteous, living God to something that's inanimate. Something that's made from creation itself. In fact, look at the absurdity uh, of these next uh, verses. It's a lot of tongue-in-cheek. There's sarcasm in the tone of Isaiah as he's writing this. Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear. Uh, they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Do you understand the links that people go to make a god? The, the, the understanding that this person who ha has great strength and great skill, a craftsman, uh, a, you know, a blacksmith, what does he do with that object? He wants to put all of his energy into that object, that idol. That, that thing that later on he'll fall down and worship before. What absurdity is that? The, the understanding that the God of the universe gave that person strength. And even gave him the materials to make it. It continues on there in the verse 13 and 14. As we see it even more described. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk and he fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and he makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and he makes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the field. He plants a pine and the rain uh, nourishes it. Where do they get the materials for these idols? From creation itself. Can you imagine that? Now, uh, you know, we, we think, you know, if you go to a nation like Nepal or, or a, you know, a, a nation like Thailand or something like that, and we see their statues. Or even in a, you know, say a Catholic church, right? You know, all those nice little statues. All those things that had to have been made by whom? A human being. And, you know, the people that worship them, they, they say, well, this just represents our God. But do you understand what they do with those idols, those statues? To worship those things. To, to bow down before those things. Made out of created items from God himself. Now, we, we look at that and we can laugh and we can, you know, make sarcastic remarks and we can, you know, say that would be absurd. I would never do that myself. But what do we do? Do we like our cars, our phones, our homes, other people even? 
Do, do we worship things also? By, by putting those things before God. Man-made things before the creator himself. The one who created all. It continues on. The description gets even more absurd. It says in verse 15, Then it shall be for a man to burn, uh, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Taking that log, taking that you know piece of wood, he, part of it he burns, a part of it he warms himself with. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and he worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. From the same piece of wood, part of it is being put into a fire to cook with and warm yourself with. And what's done with the other half? A statue, an idol. Something that is made in the form of a human being so that they could fall down and worship before it. He burns half of it in the fire, and with this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Oh, the absurdity of these backwards people. While we hold our phones or watch our TVs that encompass our lives, we bow down before the altar of entertainment. We bow down before the altar of finance and money. We bow down before the altar of free time. All, all the things that we desire in our society. Is it easy to see the absurdity in another person's life and yet miss that big, huge dot of sin in the forehead of ours? Oh, yeah. I do it all the time, unfortunately. Verse 18, they do not know or know they, do they understand for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? We, we, we never acknowledge our own absurdity. We never acknowledge our own worship of another God. In fact, in verse 20, it describes it in this way. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand. Have you ever examined your life before Christ? The blindness of your soul. Just looking back with that, those spiritual eyes, how blind I was in the past to the, to the you know, just the, the knowledge of God himself, that, that God was working in my life, even back then when I never acknowledged God. This is the picture that we see. 
It's of that picture of that pagan who bows down to an idol itself. And before Christ, we were all pagans, bowing down to the idols of convenience in our lives as well. And hopefully when, when God comes into your life, he opens your eyes and, and shows you the blindness, the waywardness of your ways and shows us that we need to change, right? That, that we need to put God uh, first, get rid of that lie that's in our hand, in our mind, uh, remove those addictions, remove those things that are hindering our walk uh, with God. Verse 21, remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servants. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Thank God for that. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. What's the privilege of knowing God personally? At any time, we can come before him. At any time, we can confess our sins. And what is he always willing to do? Forgive us of all of our sins. The privilege of knowing God personally is to have a relationship with him that transforms our lives so that we can repent at any time, so that we can turn our back on our sin and turn uh, back to God. That 180 uh, degree turn, and God will uh, redeem us. It produces praise in our hearts. Verse 23, sing, O nations, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. For whom will Jesus Christ come to this earth. We know that he came in the form of a baby from the tribe of Judah to the nation of Israel. But the privilege of this knowing is that this was also for the world as well. Who's the ones that are praising in this verse? Not only the heavens themselves, but the lower parts of the earth. As we're going to see in the very next chapter, the privilege of knowing that the word of God is going to be scattered among the nations themselves. Not just the Israelites, but to all the world as well. Aren't you glad, by the way? Even those without a single drop of Israeli blood in them will also get to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. The Gentiles, as the Bible uh, describes it. Verse 25, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backwards and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. You see, within 50 years from this time, when this is written during the time of King Hezekiah himself, the nation of Israel is going to be left desolate. For 70 years, there's going to be no people living in the land. And the prediction that we're going to see here in the very next couple of verses is that God is going to keep his promise to bring the people of Israel back to the land, faithful to his promises 
uh, to them. In fact, in verse 27 and 28, we see the accuracy to the very uh, name of the person who's going to release the people of Israel. Verse 27, it says, Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be uh, laid. Now, we're reading this in 2021. And, you know, and of course, these are all historical events that have already taken place. But do you understand that when this was written, this was the prophetic word of God predicting the future in such accurate details that critics of the Bible say that this could never have been written before it took place. In fact, God is going to use a pagan king to release his people back to the promised land. And all of this, chapter 44, chapter 45, chapter 46, will happen 150 years in the future from when this book is being written. In fact, in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we see the fulfillment of this prophetic event. Again, down to the very name of the king. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kings of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, fulfilling the prophetic word that Isaiah had predicted all the way back in Isaiah chapter 44. And people that, you know, and especially if you read like commentaries or, or critiques of the book of Isaiah, they say, well, you know, maybe the beginning of the book, verse, chapters 1 through 39, they were written by the, the, the real Isaiah. And then the rest of it was written by, you know, people that came along later. Uh, maybe post-exilic times where, you know, after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they looked back and they said, oh, we'll just put in this section here. You see, every single one of these chapters had to be written before these prophetic words took place. And the reason why, because not only did the predictions of Cyrus come true, but the predictions of Jesus Christ as well. See, this is just a small part of the prophetic word. This is the easy part. Cyrus was the easy one. This pagan king who's from the Persian Empire, who wasn't even a nation at the time of this writing, by the way, let alone a world power, uh, whose God is predicting would bring back the nation of Israel. This is the easy part compared to the messianic word, the messianic prophecies of Jesus Christ coming to earth 700 years in the future. Now, this is the easy part. God using a pagan king to return his people back to the land. You see, in great detail, not only is he going to allow the people to return, but he's also going to build them a temple as well. 
as it says in Ezra. And if you read the book of Ezra, you see that the temple's going to be rebuilt. In verse 3 of Ezra chapter 1, it says, Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold and goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. The, the nation of Persia, this power that had overtaken the Babylonian Empire, which again was also not even a, a world power at the time of this writing, who also took over the Assyrian Empire, which we learned was the world power at this time. Three different nations in sequential order, Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia. And God uses these nations in his deity to bring about his perfect will on the earth. To bring the people of Israel back to the land of Israel. You see, dates are extremely important. Have you ever, you know, just maybe read through the Bible and, and opened up to the beginning of the book and there's that, you know, maybe a, a page of all the different, you know, um, commentary about that book. It'll have like the topic and the author and the date and all those things, right? The dates are very, very important because they show in sequential order which parts of the Bible are written at what time. Because the prophecies that are written here were written before they happened. By definition, these prophetic words had to have been written before they actually occurred. And so as you walk through these books, make sure that you understand the dates as well. Cyrus himself, even though Isaiah was written somewhere between 755 B.C. and 700 B.C., for a period of four different kings uh, that we read about at the beginning, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. Cyrus himself didn't even become king until 538 BC. 150 years in the future. Chapter 45, verse 1, we learn more about this king who's going to come into the future. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Again, fulfilling prophetic word of God. We read this and we say, I have no idea what this is talking about. But, but if you look at, you know, not only commentary, but also history itself, this is exactly how Cyrus overtook the Babylonian Empire. You see, if you remember from the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, verse 30, remember the writing on the wall? Remember there was this, you know, this guy, Belshazzar, and he was, you know, celebrating with all of his friends and, and drinking literally alcohol from the temple cups themselves, the gold temple cups, the silver temple cups. And was celebrating, all of a sudden there's this writing on the wall, and they call for this really old guy by the name of Daniel, whom his mother had remembered that had served before his dad or grandpa. 
And he calls him in and he tells him to interpret the writing on the wall. And in Daniel chapter 5, verse 30 and 31, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And in Daniel chapter 6, we learned that the other king, because there was an alliance between the Medes and the Persians at this time. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 28, it says, So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel was there at the very conquering of Babylon itself. When Darius and Cyrus came together, this coalition of nations that were under the rule of the Babylonian Empire, and they literally just walked through an open gate, taking over the Babylonian Empire in one night without any bloodshed whatsoever other than the king himself. Just a coup that took place within the Babylonian Empire. And then, of course, the Medes and the Persians, they become now the world power. Seventy years later, what happened? Cyrus being the king of the Persian Empire, that cupbearer by the name of Nehemiah who comes before him. And what does he say? I'm going to give you equipment. I'm going to give you materials. Go and build a wall. The privilege of understanding that every single one of these things will come true. Now, we understand 150 years, I can look back, and that's the past. 2,000 years ago, I see Jesus Christ in the past. But do you understand there's also a prophetic word that's in our future as well? Do you believe that will come to pass? You see, we can look back with 2020 vision and say, oh yeah, those things came to pass. I, I believe those things. But do you believe the word of God that predicts your own future? Is Jesus Christ coming again? Is Jesus Christ coming again? Do you believe that? I hope we do. It continues on in verse 2 there. I will go before you and make the crooked paths places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. You see, Babylon had a hundred bronze gates. And on that night, one of those gates was open. It was a double-barred gate. This gate that was supposed to be secured. But a coup took place and, and Cyrus and Darius were able to just walk right in with their armies. Overtake the Babylonian empire in one night. This once impregnable a city is now conquered by the Medes and the Persian. Verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of, J of Israel. And do you understand that not only in verse 1, where it talks about God holding the right hand of Cyrus, and then again in verse uh, 3, calling out his name, that this is a Gentile pagan king. And the way this would, you know, cause a, you know, a revulsion within the heart of an Israelite person or a Jewish person that reads this. Why would God use a Gentile? Why would he ever use a dog? 
Why, why would he ever use someone who doesn't even acknowledge him as God to free his people? What does God do to the heart of Cyrus? Can he change even the highest person in authority? The, the one who's the world power at this time. Can God change the heart of even a person who is downright rebellious against God? Can he do that? Yes, he can. He's the one that puts up leaders and brings them down. In fact, in verse 4, it says, For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name, literally calling out the name Cyrus 150 years before it takes place. I have named you, though you have not known me. This pagan king is going to be chosen by God to release the people of Israel back to the land. Verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Repeating all the way back in chapter 44, where we just read earlier, where, where Kat even quoted from earlier today. Verse 8 of chapter 44. What, what does that mean? Uh, and we can, we can relate to it when it's talking about idols or when it's talking about other gods. But now what is it referring to? This God who predicts literally the course of nations itself. Can any other deity do that? No. Those small things of, you know, a wooden idol or a gold idol or a silver idol are pitifully compared to what God is doing in the hearts of powerful nations, <clears throat> of powerful nations and powerful people. This is the God that we serve. This is the one who is in charge of the entire universe. In fact, in verse 6, how does it describe God's power? That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Are you selfish with your relationship with God? <clears throat> or do you share your relationship with God with those that do not know him? See, the privilege that we have of knowing God personally is not to keep it to ourselves, but to do what? To share it. The great uh, commission. Verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Going all the way back to the dawn of creation itself. What was the very first thing that God created on day number one? Light itself. Out of all the chaos, God creates light. Even before the sun and the moon, by the way, which aren't even created until later on in the creation story. A light itself is created first out of all the things, out of all the elements, out of all creation itself. God creates the very first thing, light itself. Can you imagine that? 
And then the privilege of knowing that not only does God create light, but he also creates darkness and he also creates peace and calamity, the control of people, people and nations and powers here on this earth. Oh, we wish for peace at Christmas time. Peace upon earth, right? What happens to the other 364 days of the year? Do you understand that God is in control? Not only of people that know him, but also people that do not know him as well. God uses the people of this earth for his glory and for his uh, will. Verse 8, it continues on. Rain down, you heavens from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created. We understand the, the physical world. We understand the sun and the moon and the stars, at least, you know, with our eyes. We understand, you know, people and nations and powers, but also above and beyond all that, what else is God in control of? Righteousness justice, all these things that, you know, we, we have a hard time defining, all, all these things that we wrestle with ourselves. And what does God give to humanity? Salvation, justice, righteousness, all these things that we understand that only God created and give to us. Woe to him to strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, oh, what are you making? Or, or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, you command me. Hopefully you would never have an object, a car or a house or something like that, that, that you know, rises up in rebellion against you and says, I'm not going to let you live here anymore. It's getting close to that with, you know, remote houses and a, a locks on your doors that you can control with your voice and everything like that. The, the a AI houses, right? The, the remote controlled, you know, locks on our doors and, and, you know, lights and music and everything else that we can control remotely. But do you understand what this is talking about in these verses? That the maker never rebels against the maker, at least in the physical realm. That, that, that person who takes that piece of clay and molds it into what he wants it to look like for the, for the purposes that he's using it for. Maybe a vase, or maybe a bowl, or maybe a cup, right? All these things that the maker, the person who's designing the pot, is making it for. And a skillful person, what can they do with that big, huge lump of clay that just plops down on the wheel. What can they make with that, that little lump of clay? Something that's now beautiful. Something that's now useful, right? 
and that lump of clay would never say, I want to be made this, or, or I don't like the way you're making me, right? Or in the next illustration that we see, something that's being carved, a piece of wood, someone that's whittling that piece of wood or, or making that you know, piece of metal or welding or carpentry or whatever it is. The understanding is that the maker has control over what is being made. Or in the next example, and unfortunately, this can happen all too often. What does it say about a father and a mother to a child that they have born to them? No one would ever say, oh, you're not my mother anymore. You're not my father anymore. Unfortunately, it does still happen. But do you understand what the Bible is describing this as? In the natural realm, this would never happen. A baby giraffe would never say to its mommy giraffe, I don't like you anymore and run away. Or an elephant baby or a bear baby or something like that. They would never do that. What do they do with their mom? They cling. They need the nourishment from their parents. They need the protection from their parents. And it's the same thing with us and God. Who is the one that's the creator? God himself. And who's the created? Us. Verse 12, I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens and all their host. I have commanded, we learned last week, the universe itself can fit in the palm of the hand of God. The span of his hand between the, the, the pinky and the thumb. The immenseness of who God is. His vastness. And to know he wants a personal relationship with you and with me. Verse 13, I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. You see, this is also predicted of what will happen to Cyrus as well. In Ezra chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, it says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all those whose spirit God had moved, arose to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with precious things beside all that was willingly offered. You see, just like when the people of Israel left Egypt, the same thing happens when they leave Babylon. The people give them things. The people bless them with things to return back to their homeland. So much so that in verse 7, this is what happens. And again, these books are written 150 years apart, okay? King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. And he put in the house or the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithradath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, uh, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them. All these precious articles, all these precious holy relics that were taken out of the temple 
are now going to be returned so that the people can build a new temple for these same items. And you can see there are 30 gold plates, 1,000 silver plates, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All these uh, religious icons that are you know, used for the worship of God within the temple that King Solomon had built. All these things, by the way, were designed by King Solomon to be used in the temple worship. What's going to happen to them? Return back to the place where they are going. The new temple that's going to be built during the time of Ezra. By the way, what is the motive of King Cyrus in verse 13? What's the motive? Why is he doing it? It says it there, not for price nor reward. Is he doing it for his own ego or for his own gain? Is he going to be somehow rewarded for doing this? No, he's not. He's just doing it because God has told him to do it. This once or this powerful man at this time who's returning all these things could have extorted the people of Israel. He could have said, well, I'll give you your religious articles if, if you pay taxes or if you come back or if you do this for me. He could have. He had every single one of the cards on his table. He had all the power. He had all the leverage. He had these things in his own house, in his own temple. But what does he do instead? He releases them freely without any reward, without any recompense, without any uh, you know, status quo or anything like that. Everything he gives freely to the people of Israel. What motivates you, by the way? I have had to ask myself that same question this week, especially when you actually have to study this stuff, you know, and you're thinking, you know, the mind of Cyrus and him returning the people of Israel. This was a, a big sacrifice on his part. He, he had a workforce. He, he had people that served him. People like Ezra, Nehemiah, his own cupbearer. What does he do? He releases him, lets him go back freely. Can you imagine that? The sacrifice on the part of this great king. And then, of course, the material wealth as well, leaving his kingdom and going back to this, you know, place in the desert, Israel itself. But the amazing thing is, the word spreads, and God uses this amazing good news to share with the world. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, men of stature shall come over to you. They shall be yours. Uh, they shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other. There is no other God. This one unselfish act of returning the people of Israel back to the nation, not only of Jerusalem, but the nation of Judea as well. What is this going to cause to happen throughout the known world at this time? People will come 
You remember the story in the book of Acts of the guy who came from Ethiopia, right? This guy who was the treasurer of the entire nation of Ethiopia, sent by the queen herself. And he comes in his chariot, and on his way back after worshiping in Jerusalem, he just happens to be reading the book of Isaiah. And this guy by the name of Philip just happens to be on the desert road and comes up to him and explains the word of Isaiah. And of course, describes Jesus Christ, this northern African nation. And of course, these other African nations as well, Egypt and, and Cush and the Sabaeans, all these northern African region of the world. What happens now? It transforms other people. By the way, non-Jewish people, Gentiles. God uses these amazing events to bring about change in the life of other people. You see, revival will occur throughout the world, starting with Israel, then, of course, the surrounding uh, nations. Places of darkness will see the light. Are you a light amongst the darkness of your world? See, we don't have to go to Africa. We don't have to go to South America. We don't have to go to, uh, you know, another place around the world. They come here. They come to Bakersfield. They, they come to America, right? Even within our own church, we have, you know, people from other nationalities, first-generation immigrants that come here. And can we share the Word of God with them? Can we form a relationship with them and share the Word of God with them? Yes, we can. Truly, you are God who hide yourself, O Israel, or God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together. They are makers of idols, but Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. How long is salvation? How long is salvation? Does it last until the next time I sin? Many people think that's the way it is, unfortunately. But how long is salvation? Forever and ever. Thank God or else I would lose it. Verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. You see the contrast between creation itself and salvation. How long how hard did God work on creation itself? Six days. That's it. Sun, moon, stars, all of creation, all the animals, all the people, right? How long has God been designing salvation? The privilege of knowing that salvation is being designed for you. The privilege of knowing that salvation reaches out to us and is long suffering longer than six days by the way thank god for that because what if god had given up on you after six days or one time or send only one person into your life to tell you about jesus christ is god long suffering in his salvation to the human race oh yeah 
Thank God for that. Verse 20, uh, we'll end it here. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image. And pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together who has declared this from ancient time, who has told it from that time. Have not I the Lord and there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I want you this week to count how many times God says there's no one like me. Because over and over and over again, the theme in chapter 44 and chapter 45 is that there is no one like our God. He is unique. He is alone God. There is no other God. Only God that we serve. You see, God's call is not to a single people group, but as it says here, to the very ends of the earth itself. Does God love people? Yes, he does. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. In him, to him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. You see, the privilege is that we also get to be a part of that throng. We also get to be a part of that crowd. We also get to be a part of that multitude of people that worship God, that serve God, that get to go to heaven itself. You see, we have that privilege. We, people that may not even have a single drop of Israeli blood in us, get also the privilege. Gentiles, people who you know are considered dogs, God reaches out to us as well. And I hope we never lose that perspective that God came to this earth for you and for me. Aren't you glad for that? I know I am. Dear Father, we thank you for the privilege. And truly it is a privilege to come before you. Because without your son, Jesus Christ, we would have no access we would have no right to come before you. But we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to die for us so that we, so that we could have a relationship with you. And so maybe tonight for the very first time, if there's someone in this room that uh, does not know you personally, I ask that, that you would prick their heart, that you would convict them, that, that you would show them that you want a relationship with them. And that they can come up here or to another person in this room and, and know that, that, that they would want to show them how to have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, tonight I ask that you would help us to be able to remember 
because yes, this is a lot of, of text and a lot of words, and but that we would be able to take away a, a thought or two, a, a, a understanding that that you are unique, that there is no one like you, that you are the one who is the personal God who who comes to this earth, deity incarnate. Not, not for your own gain, but for us, so that we can glorify you, so that we can spend eternity with you forever and ever and ever. Thank you for making salvation forever. Lord, I ask you bless these, my friends, my family, those that are here, those that are online. Use us for your glory this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.